We in this podcast in the past couple episodes have been talking about criminal justice broadly. And then with regard to a specific juvenile case in Mississippi, which we'll come back to in a second. So your work centers around juvenile justice in a variety of ways. So what does juvenile justice and that mean to you? So I think it means a couple things and I, it does hinge on that term justice. So I think, well, my thinking on it has evolved a lot of what I think the juvenile justice system is or what juvenile justice is. And so I would say I'm more inclined to call the system itself the juvenile legal system now because there has just been so much exposure that I've gotten just to make it seem almost farcical to call it a juvenile justice system. Now, that's not to say that the people who are involved within it, who are judges, prosecutors, and police, and the victims of crimes believe that there should be justice. And I'm not saying that there isn't some kind of justice that we should all be aspiring to, but there is so much injustice in the system that it has it become much more of a juvenile legal system to me than a juvenile justice system. Now, that's not to say that I don't believe in this idea of youth justice and juvenile justice. And so this idea that could, it, could we have a world where people could come together people who are broken and commit crimes, who are people who are broken because of crimes, and that we could have a broader sense of justice encompass all of that. And so I suppose the term juvenile justice now seems like a very aspirational one, but juvenile legal seems more descriptive to me. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we, and in particular me, I am super excited because we have a special interview with Jisun Song, who besides being an amazing person, you'll hear more about why and how she's amazing, um, is doing some really interesting work in juvenile justice through her past career and current study. And so I can't wait to get in there and ask her all the questions. So hi, Jisun. Hi, thanks guys for having me. I'm so excited. Thank you for being on here. So I'm going to give you your full formal introduction. But first, I have a little caveat here because I think you, Jisan, are the reason why I made it through law school for a whole host of reasons, including our late night cram sessions. Same thing to all the time. <laughs> yeah. So I can't believe it's been, you know, 15 years since we graduated. But anyway, I'm super excited to be sitting here with you. And let's talk about what you've been doing in those past 15 years. So you went to Columbia as an undergrad, and you also went to Columbia Law School, where we met. And now your scholarship focuses on criminal and juvenile justice. So Jisun's research explores the intersection of the criminal and juvenile justice systems and different institutions and areas of law. And your current project examines policing in hospitals, for example. So in addition, Jisun has been active in local, regional, and national juvenile justice reform. She trains practicing juvenile defenders throughout the country. She is currently at Stanford, where she teaches federal litigation in a global context and legal research and writing. But prior to joining Stanford, Jisun was a public defender in California, where she represented youth and adults in delinquency and criminal proceedings. During her time at the public defender's office, she expanded the juvenile unit to include education and post-disposition representation and worked with local stakeholders on improving conditions of confinement and reentry for youth. 
Before then, Jisun worked in a different capacity as a senior policy advocate at the National Juvenile Defender Clinic and as a fellow at Georgetown University's Law Center Juvenile Justice Clinic and as a federal judicial clerk in New York. So Jisun is a founding member of the Asian American Criminal Trial Lawyers Association and the Bay Area Public Defenders for Racial Justice. She currently serves on the executive board of the Pacific Juvenile Defender Center. And I think, are you the chair currently or? President coming. President. Okay. The incoming president, the Pacific Juvenile Defender Center. So you've got some amazingly relevant experience to this conversation. So I can't wait to jump right into it. So let's get really basic here for a second. We in this podcast in the past couple episodes have been talking about criminal justice broadly. And then with regard to a specific juvenile case in Mississippi, which we'll come back to in a second. So your work centers around juvenile justice in a variety of ways. So what does juvenile justice and that mean to you? So I think it means a couple things. And I it does hinge on that term justice. So I think, well, my thinking on it has evolved a lot of what I think the juvenile justice system is or what juvenile justice is. And so I would say I'm more inclined to call the system itself the juvenile legal system now because there has just been so much exposure that I've gotten just to make it seem almost farcical to call it a juvenile justice system. Now, that's not to say that the people who are involved within it, who are judges, prosecutors, and police, and the victims of crimes believe that there should be justice. And I'm not saying that there isn't some kind of justice that we should all be aspiring to, but there is so much injustice in the system that it has it become much more of a juvenile legal system to me than a juvenile justice system. Now, that's not to say that I don't believe in this idea of youth justice and juvenile justice. And so this idea that could, it, could we have a world where people could come together, people who are broken and commit crimes, who are people who are broken because of crimes, and that we could have a broader sense of justice encompass all of that. And so I suppose the term juvenile justice now seems like a very aspirational one, but juvenile legal seems more descriptive to me. Now I know I'm starting to sound like a law professor, so <laughs> stop me if this is <laughs> Yeah. I love it. You do. But that's amazing. A lot of advocates now are also using the term juvenile legal. And because this idea of juvenile justice is just so fraught. So this idea of like, do we want people to co-op that term of juvenile justice to say that's actually what's going on? And so can we be more real and call it what it is? That's really powerful. And it sounds like your feelings about the even the terminology behind what you're doing has changed over time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if we can back up, you know, 15 years back, what initially got you interested in this field, you know, the juvenile legal system? It's so not a good story. But I'll <laughs> so I had this idea that doing juvenile work was for people who can handle like the real gritty stuff that people who couldn't be that kids were somehow and are, you know, more sympathetic. And so I was I mean, Miss Nashi might remember, but I did the criminal defense clinic, and so that was with adult defenders. So I never even touched the juvenile clinic at Columbia. I didn't do any internships in it. And it was completely by fluke. I did a fellowship at Georgetown after my clerkship. And you interview, it's called the Pretty Men Fellowship. And so I get this call saying, oh, you got in, you got the fellowship, but we really want you to work with Chris Henning and Wally Mullenick at the Juvenile Justice Clinic. 
I was like, oh, I never wanted to do juvenile work. And then I got the hard sell from past. They were like, Chris Henning and Wally Malenik are amazing. They're going to change your lives. And I was like, okay, as long as I can keep doing adult work, I'll do the clinic. And then it did change my life. It made me realize that representing children is a really special thing that you can do, that I had a special knack for it. And that they're looking at the way the system treats kids is a nice way of looking at what all the problems and possible fixes could be for our criminal justice system. So that it was totally because someone convinced me that working with Chris and Wally would be great. And they're my mentors for life. So it has been a good decision. That's amazing. Because I remember those conversations around the pretty men. And what year was that for the pretty men? Was that 2006? Okay. And so you were there as a fellow at Georgetown Law's Juvenile Justice Clinic, and then you moved to being a senior policy advocate at the National Juvenile Defender Clinic, right? Also in D.C.? Yeah, the NJDC, the Defender Center. It's like, you know, D.C. loves their acronyms. So I did that afterwards. And so it was a really interesting time to be in D.C. doing juvenile justice reform. You'll see me. I'll slip in. Even with what I said about words, I will say juvenile justice, juvenile legal. I won't. I'll slip all the time. At that time, this man named Vincent Chiraldi or Vinny Chiraldi was heading up the Department of Youth and Rehabilitation Services in D.C. James Foreman, who has written that great book, I don't know if you guys have talked about it yet on your podcast. He's now a professor at Yale. He was a public defender and a professor at Georgetown at that time. And he had started a charter school called the Maya Angelou Foundation. And they had ended up opening up a charter school at the youth correctional facility. So when I say correctional facility, the other not to go back to words, there's a lot of euphemisms in the juvenile system. So when you hear things like correctional facility, what they actually mean is the equivalent of the juvenile prison, right? So you will hear juvenile hall is more like what you would think of like a county jail. A commitment or correctional facility is where they send the most serious, what they say, serious and violent cases. And that, when you go look at it, will look more like a prison to you. So it was a really amazing time that you had this big reformer who was in the commitment department, the one that was taking these serious and violent kids, and that you had this amazing charter school that was opening up at the commitment facility. So there's like an Annie Casey Foundation had been getting their juvenile detention alternatives reform and found thing off the ground in DC. So there was a lot of excitement at that time about how could the system change. And so it was an interesting time to be there. I think that a lot of it has to do with it being my first real job out of law school and you know, having this sense that, oh, anything is possible, right? When you're 20s and you think you can fix everything. I just got a letter from my client asking me if I was still a workaholic. And I was just thinking like back at that time, just thinking, oh, these kids' lives can be changed and I have a huge role to play in it. But it was in a lot of ways that time was exciting. But it also, I just recently had a chance to go back to DC to look at their juvenile system again. And you see in 15 years how things retrench, things change, some things get better, but some things get worse and some things get the same. And so I think that's a lot of story about juvenile reform in general. But anyway, that was my answer to your time. (laughs) My legal experience has been like big firm law pretty much always. So I honestly, like as a policy advocate, I have no clear ideas to what like what you did, even though you told me and I've clearly forgotten. So but could you tell us what that role was like? 
So it was, I worked at a place that used to be part of the ABA, so the American Bar Association, and their juvenile justice section. And what my job was to work with California and with a bunch of southern states on a bunch of reform initiatives that they had. So it wasn't, I would say that policy advocate positions in different places could be more like legislative advocacy. I was more on kind of local county and state-based change, working directly with stakeholders. So in California, I was largely working with defenders as they were getting, actually now the PJDC, the Pacific Juvenile Defender Center that I am now going to be president of next year, I guess, that they, so getting that more firm in structure and how they were going to be able to conduct change through their defense work. And Louisiana, I did a lot of work with the judges and multi-stakeholder meetings and with prosecutors and probation. So that was interesting. And I think that it gave me a lot of insight as I went into my public defender career to have done this multi-stakeholder work before, because I think it gave me a lot of insight into how judges think, what probation officers' priorities are, and prosecutors, what their priorities are as well. Can I ask a couple of basic questions? Yeah, go for it. (laughs) I was confused. So I would love a couple of questions here. One was, what is the difference before you started mentioning it between jails and prisons? Because as a layman, I've always used those interchangeably, but obviously there's a difference. And then the other question I had was, you mentioned stuff like stakeholders and, you know, for example, the Pacific Juvenile Defender Center. Who are these people? Like, if you're a lawyer, do you get to be a member? How do all of these organizations work that you're a part of? Are they required? Are they, you know, volunteer? Who has an invested interest in these organizations? And what are the purposes of some of them that you're in? So for the first question about jail and prison, so everybody will probably recognize what their local county jail is, right? So it's county or the lockup facility. I mean, you might see signs for it off your freeway or something like that, or it might be close to your local courthouse. And that's designed to be a temporary holding facility. So let's say a person's locked up and we'll talk about kids. Let's say kids are locked up and for whatever reason the it's determined that they shouldn't be sent home pending their case, then they'll be held locally at the juvenile hall. Um, The way physical layout, it just tends to be smaller, but juvenile halls also tend to be, even if they in structure, they have a lot of adult facility-like tendencies. So like when you go in, there'll be, you know, locked doors, individual cells, each cell will have like a concrete little slab thing where they put out their sheet and their pillow. There'll be a guard desk in the middle. And so, you know, a lot of them have two levels and the youth may have, some of them have outdoor places where they can go out. Sometimes they don't. And they will have school and everything in this one little space. Prison in both the adult and the juvenile context is where you get sent to. It's one of the places you could get sent. And that's not to say you can also get sent to jail, but prison is for longer terms. So when you hear these sentences of like life without parole or even like 15 years, then those people are at prison. For kids, when they're getting sent for anything in the number of years, they're going to their commitment facility at. It's very complicated, and this actually goes to your next question about what stakeholders are. The other thing that I learned is that both the criminal system and the juvenile system has a lot of vested interests, 
right? There's a lot of money invested in like all the different stakeholders and the places that these kids populate, right? So like juvenile halls will cost millions of dollars to build. Prisons cost millions of dollars to build. And then they also cost a lot of money to maintain. So the stakeholders are the typical ones will be judges, prosecutors, probation officers, public defenders, or the defense attorney. There will also I think I already mentioned probation. And there often is, in some places, the Department of Health and Human Services or the dependency system like Child and Family Services. Many places are starting to include a community voice as part of the stakeholders, even though, you know, that term community can be really fraught about who defines who is community and who represents the community. And the organizations that I, so the Pacific Juvenile Defender Center is actually where I had worked, the National Juvenile Defender Center as a policy advocate. They've created all these vast regional networks. So the Pacific Juvenile Defender Center is one of them. And the goal is to arm defenders to have every tool that they can to be as zealous advocates as they possibly can be in the courtroom because juvenile practice takes a lot of knowledge in different spaces, right? So it's not just knowledge of like what happens in the courtroom and criminal law, but kids are in school. So you have to know what the education law is. A lot of them have mental illnesses. So the knowledge about that and then collateral consequences, like what happens if you have a juvenile case that ended in a bad result? How will that affect you with student loans, with getting a job, the military? So the PJDC, is that was its original mandate. In California, um, what we're seeing now is that the defender community is very strong because different from other places, the public defenders in California are much more resourced than you are in places like Louisiana, for example, or Georgia, or even New York City. And so you have this vast, this people who stay in this public defender job for decades. And so they amass this great database of knowledge of what really happens on the ground. So PJDC has been really working on how can we take that and create change in terms of legislative advocacy, individual case advocacy, and other kinds of reform. Yeah. Awesome. I didn't even know some of that. So that was very helpful. Yeah. It's county-based. And so that's, there is, when I say that criminal justice, and I'm saying it from a place that I recognize that in Louisiana and places like New York, like getting the salaries that those people get is very, very low. Like you talk about people having like 200 cases and they get paid like $30,000, $40,000 out of law school. In California, if you just even look at the death row, right, in California, it's immense. When you look at the California Supreme Court's docket, it's mainly criminal cases. And so you just have all these stakeholders in California who are just, I will say, even public defenders are part of this machine that takes up a lot of the budget. So yeah, much better funded. Now, that's not to say it's perfect. I don't want to get any of my PD friends in California mad at me that somehow said that California is like heaven or something. But, you know, I do say that it is a better model for having a public defender in California where you can actually litigate a case rather than when you, but like for my friends who are in New Orleans and they have to do like a murder case in like two days and two weeks preparation, it seems crazy. I can't imagine that. Being a civil litigator too, like we take years for cases. So (laughs) the amount of stress that you have to be under to, and you're dealing with literal life and death scenarios. I largely deal with transfer of money. You know, does someone get richer? 
or not. So I want to talk more about your public defender experience, though, because first of all, I was super excited when you became a PD because you came back to California. So I was like real pumped about that. But like hearing your stories of your PD work was so heartbreaking in a lot of ways and so tough. And I always thought you are so tough, you know, to handle all of that. I would like you because a lot of people have an, a basic understanding of law, like from law and order. Right. And it's, you know, you've got the D.A. and you've got the private defense attorney, but a public defender is something and you have a very different role in the system. So can you talk to us about your time on the PD's office? I love being a public defender. It was really hard for me when I left the office because it has been a part of my identity even before law school, because I went to law school to become a public defender. And the thing I will say when I look back on it and you want me when if I'm going to talk about it, the thing that defines that experience are my clients. And so it is I say to people that thing about being a public defender that's so great is that every day your job is to be kind in a situation where most people would not be kind. And that is something that I miss probably the most about my job. I got into this like Twitter argument with Nicholas. Kristoff at one point from the New York Times because, well, not an argument. He wrote something about Jesus and like something, I don't know. And I said, well, if Jesus were, or maybe he was writing about public defenders. I said, well, if Jesus Christ were living right now, he would be a public defender. And he wrote back, he was like, not a social worker. I was like, definitely not a social worker. And then we got a bunch of like evangelicals who were writing me and saying like, oh, Jesus is alive. I'm like, okay, I understand. But yeah, so I feel like my time as a public defender was so defined by my clients, but at the same time, understand realizing that that there are a lot of institutional things about public defender offices that could be changed to make our clients' representation even better. So when I was working with the juvenile unit specifically, I was drawn to the Contra Costa County's office because I grew up in my parents' church was in Contra Costa County. And I had a lot of friends who grew up in this area. And so for me, it was like coming home. And I also wanted to go someplace that didn't wasn't as resourced in terms of it for a California office, very high volume, low resource, the county does not give as much to the public defender's office as they do in other places, like Santa Clara, for example, or San Mateo, where you are but we didn't have an education lawyer. We didn't have social workers and all those things. So the other thing about my time as the PD was just trying to figure out ways in which I can convince people both in my job and on the county level that it was worthwhile to make these investments. And so that was a commitment that I made to myself when I got there and I tried to fulfill before I left. Can I ask then, because this is, I get it from a vague perspective, but I would love to hear something more specific about either a specific thing that you thought was needed to be fixed, or, you know, was broken and it needed to be fixed. Because I think there are enough people who might say, well, these kids did something wrong, so they should be punished. And I get that perspective. There has to be a consequence. But I know that as parents, we're starting to learn things like you shouldn't give an arbitrary punishment for something that they won't learn. And so I feel like this applies to the juvenile legal system, too. If the idea is reintegrating kids into society and growing up with all of our kids together, you don't want some, I don't know, you want it to work. And so what did you see that didn't work? And can you share one case or a story or something concrete with us, please? Yeah, so 
I'll just give you a couple of examples. One is shackling. So I had this one client and she had, she was at, her family was being racially piled when they were at the supermarket. It was all caught on the TV. And so she was the youngest person there. She was like 12 or 13. And she was there with all her aunties and her mom. And she got really, really, really mad because she felt like people were following them and, you know, just kind of, and they were at the cash register and she kind of got into it with the storekeeper and she was arrested and then taken to court and then locked up. And then in subsequent court hearings, she would come in and she would be shackled, right? So shackling is a big deal in juvenile reform because it's like, it's what you imagine with chain gang shackling. And so you have like your wrist shackled, your ankles are shackled, you have a leather belt around your waist, and then you have a chain that goes from the leather belt to your wrist, so you can't really move your wrist. And I remember, so imagine this, that was the crime for which she was committed. She was living with her grandmother, and you know, her family situation wasn't great, and then she ended up back in court because she had missed school a couple times. And so this was the consequence for her missing school, was her to be locked up, and then to be shackled. And so her family was awesome. Like, even though they had all these problems, they were like, they got the community involved. They got the local city council person involved. They came to protest her shackling. And I remember, because she had told me and her mom and her grandmother, like, what it just makes me feel so bad. It makes me feel so awful. It makes me feel like I'm a really bad person. And so the day, one day when the family knew that she was going to be coming in, they wanted to show up to support her to make her not feel that way. So they came up with all these signs that say, you know, love, not shackles. And because what they would do in our county is they would park the car across the street and all the kids would cross the street shuffling in their chains to get to the courthouse. As soon as the judges heard that this was going to happen, they had the cars scoot past to go back entrance to have them come up. And it was like such an obvious acknowledgement for me that everybody knew that there was something at least optically wrong with this situation to have a bunch of black and brown kids cross the street in chains. And yet the practice still continues. And then another one, which is I think something that parents at home can understand is that a lot of these stints in juvenile heart are not gonna be forever, right? They're gonna be weeks at a time, maybe months at a time at most, but it's a different school system inside the juvenile hall than it is outside. And so, and once you're inside the hall, the school that you're in has no relation to the school that you're coming from. And so one issue is that when they get there, suddenly they're like, take, I had some kids who were getting A's because they were given the same books over and over again. So they just knew the answers. So they're not learning anything when they're at the hall, but then getting credits transferred back was a nightmare and getting kids re-enrolled. You couldn't re-enroll kids. Like even if the court was ordering them to be re-enrolled, the receiving school wouldn't take them. Transcripts wouldn't be sent over or the receiving school would be like, look, this kid is trouble. We don't want them. And so it's things like that, that just make the issue of re-entry really, really difficult. It was so frustrating to me the other day because I had tried to work this out with my county and we had come up with a solution. We had the superintendent of our little juvenile hall schools and there were, I had gotten a grant funded education lawyer and then we were talking to probation. We really had all this plan. And then I just remember one day, like 
it just turned out that there was a secretary at this one school who was just refusing to do anything about it. And then just imagine, like, if you had a kid coming up, showing up at the school, maybe doesn't have a parent who has all the advocacy skills that you or I might have, and then the kid just can't go. And so then they get sent home. And when I think about school and kids, I think about how school for me as a child was a place where I changed the most as a person that was so formative for me. And for these kids who are hopping back and forth between hall and school or no school, we're losing all of that opportunity that they could have had. I don't know if that's originally what I was going to say, but I think that's what does it for me. How did you see race play into the juvenile legal system? You know, and I'm sure that there is a socioeconomic link as well. But I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, everything, if you look at all studies about the juvenile system, will show you that a disproportionate, what the federal government calls disproportionate minority contact, or other places will call disparate outcomes or discrimination, exists at all stages. And so in a place where I work, there was most of my clients were black or brown. And there's also a heavy Latino population in the county where I worked. And that goes, the studies show that that's the case in most places. Now, you could be in other places where socioeconomic reasons are show up much more. Like I have a friend who practices up north in California, where there is, it's a largely white population. So what you will see are people who are very poor coming in through the juvenile system. And this, it shows up with how, in a lot of people's decisions, right? So where police decide that they're going to do patrols, and then how they're going to exercise their discretion. So in a situation where maybe if where I grew up, where a police might just talk to me or let me go, they might arrest someone. And then there's a decision by probation to either keep them at the hall or let them go home and let them do what's called a diversion program where you can just do community service, right? I mean, that happens a lot. If you have resources, you have a lawyer or you have parents who seem who have the means or who somehow other otherwise portray themselves to probation or the, or the court that they have things under control, then a lot of those kids get diverted away from the system. And then, you know, the prosecutor makes decisions about how they're going to charge things. And there's a lot of research on uh, prosecutor decisions about how their implicit biases may play into how they charge things, whether they charge things as misdemeanors or felonies or whether they charge at all. And then the court, when they make detention decisions and sentencing decisions, and public defenders are not immune from it either. There's a lot of research that shows that public defenders may also, in their case triage, how they might plea negotiate could also, race could play a big part in that as well. And so what I find is that race is the hardest thing about it. I mean, obviously, there's that's a really messed up system in a lot of ways. Hardest thing about it for me was trying to explain that to my black and brown clients. Because there were times when they could sense, they either explicitly knew that race was the reason why they were being treated a certain way, or they just felt like it. And I often had to walk a fine line between being very honest with them about and validating how they felt. But I also believe that as a public defender, as a lawyer, right? And as a counselor, I mean, it's not different whether your client is a corporation or your client is a young black kid, that you need to give them the means and arm them with enough information for them to succeed. 
And so how is it that I don't make them feel so hopeless and that they are targeted because of the color of their skin? How do I make them both validate that so they don't, I don't want to be like the person being like, oh, race doesn't exist, right? Like that's not the way to go, but acknowledge it, but also help them figure out, okay, how do I not turn this into a negative, demoralizing, completely hopeless situation for me? That was, those were the hardest conversations for me. I think that in thinking back to the conversations that we used to have about your work at the PD's office, I was often struck by the role of the PD, especially in the juvenile legal system, that you play something that's more than an advocate in a lot of ways. Like you're an advocate as their attorney, but you're also coming in as sometimes not quite the parental figure, but the adult figure in their life who, you know, you're the steady adult figure in their life, which I think is hard for people to understand if they're not familiar with that system. And, you know, if you're thinking that these kids did something wrong again, and they're in there for a reason, but when you look at the lack of support sometimes and you providing that support, like, how was that for you? Well, I will say, so there are a lot of people who might disagree with the way I approached my job, but one person said, oh, before I became a public defender, she was like, if you ever find yourself at a hospital with a client, then you know that, you know, you've overstepped your bounds. <laughs> but, and I did often find myself at a hospital with my client because I had this one client who got shot in the head by a police officer and he was taken to the emergency room and he had nobody. Like he was a foster kid with no actual placement. So I spent three weeks at the hospital with him and was his patient advocate, was the person that brought him food, was also the advocate with the general counsel there because it turned out that the police had said all sorts of stuff to affect his medical care. Then I had to turn around and also litigate for him in court. And so it was hard, but I also felt like I couldn't not do it. So I couldn't not show up for him in a situation like that. Now, I had friends who did that job too, and they have children, right? And I don't have children. And so they'd be like, well, you know, it's impossible to do that. And I get that it's, there are, everybody has different boundaries when it comes to how they could be an advocate for their kids. But that's what's so special and so hard about representing children, because you're, if you both have kids, like, when do you say no? How much is too much? And when you have these children who are coming in, who are really amazing people. Like my clients would always make me laugh there. If I had a bad day at court, I could definitely go to juvenile hall and someone was going to cheer me up, you know, and to have people like that in my life every day and then have this choice of like, okay, do I go home and do these things? Or if I, am I going to do this stuff to be there for them? No, that I'm not saying that's a recipe for like you know, perfectly boundary lifestyle. But <laughs> it is what makes, I think, juvenile representation so, such a special and difficult thing. And so much of your conversation, what has jumped out at me and, and something Misasha knows I say all the time is, you know, in positive psych, they say relationships are the biggest protector of your health and happiness. And you realize just even talking to you, how many children have fallen through the cracks, how they don't have meaningful relationships and people who, in theory, the adults in their life who are supposed to protect them, love them, and advocate for them. There's a lot of kids out there who don't have that. No, and it's really heartbreaking. And there are many of them. I can't, it's hard for me. I have clients who had came from very loving families, even if they weren't like the traditional two-parent household, had very loving grandparents or other people who they called family to support them. 
But by and large, there are a lot of clients who the only person who was visiting them was me. I had this one client and I remember visiting him and his mom was also visiting his brother, but not visiting him. And being in a position where I had to kind of like physically block that so that he wouldn't see it, uh, you know, things, situations like that. And also just, but there's a positive side that to that too. Like I just, this client, my, one of my last clients at the PD's office, he was a special project of mine and he was charged in adult court and we ended up getting a resolution for him and we actually just went to the juvenile facility, which was a much better outcome for him. And uh, he just wrote me a letter last week. I went into my office and like the first thing is a letter from him because I had sent him Ta-Nehisi Coates between the world and me. And he sent me this letter back saying, I don't know what brought you to send me that book. I never thought that I would read a book where I would have to pick out a dictionary and actually enjoy the book, but I did. I think I have it. So he, and then he said, that book has so much hidden knowledge and information that you have to almost read every page twice or you'll miss it. Every word I didn't know the meaning of, I looked up and rewrote it. I highlighted a lot of the things that was deep to me and that I understood him on. I got so intrigued with the book that I had another book by him sent to me called The Beautiful Struggle. And it helped me tune into my life and relate to my body. And now I'm feeling like I'm finding myself. And I'm like, you know, that's the thing. It's like, Little things make such a difference. So then I would get really angry when other people had moments to do little things and they didn't do them because kids are like sponges. You guys both know they're like sponges. They just soak up every energy, all the good things that you put out for them as well as the bad things. And I would say to the, you know, if people think like, okay, these kids have done bad things, I just say, well, Kids have done bad things, but that doesn't define who they are. If we had a system that actually took them in and did this thing of rehabilitation, then I'm all for it. But I had this one friend and she had a, it was actually the story that you wrote. It was like a snatch and grab without a gun, but very similar to the, the story you guys were talking about in Mississippi. She called me immediately right after it happened. She knew I was formerly a public defender and she's like, what should I do? Please are asking me if I should, what I should do if I want to file charges. So I was kind of counseling her because I understand what it means to have your sense of personal security violated, right? Like we don't want violence in the world. We want people to follow the rules. Like I get mad even when people don't follow the traffic rules, right? But I was asking, I just asked her, what is your ultimate goal, right? Do you think that having this kid sent to wherever he's going to be, is that going to make you feel more safe? Or is that just going to make you feel vindicated right now in the moment? Because if we have this idea of juvenile system as being rehabilitative, then what we have right now is not. So if what we have right now is not, then is there another way for you to handle this situation? I had told her, like, oh, because there's this thing called restorative justice that is picking up a lot of things in circles. And I said, you know, a lot of times these kids who are taking stuff from people, it's because they see that they have, you have, and I don't, right? I had a client back in D.C., and I would so brilliant. I was like, okay, if circumstances were different, you would have been like the most amazing person ever. And she would always commit these robberies in Adams Morgan, which you might know in DC. I was like, why are you doing it in Adams Morgan? She's like, like a 13 year old. She's like, because everybody there is so rich. I'm like, okay, that is not where all the rich people live in DC. (laughs) But in her mind, in this very like class-based materialist country we have, If you think about people keeping up with the Joneses, how much more pressure is that for a child who's growing up in the Bay Area where you have like 
all this tech wealth, right? And sit right next to these kids who don't have enough to even buy shoes. So I think like, I always say that to my friends who are kind of like wanting to explore this idea of what we could do with an alternative reimagined world of justice than what we have right now. Uh, I love that. I think to take that time to think past your knee-jerk reaction or and to remember that these are kids in a lot of ways, because I think from the minute we hear a crime has been committed, regardless of age, it's just, you know, you define that or a lot of people define that person as bad or something wrong. And you don't take into account the specifics around each scenario. And again, look at those consequences, like what happens from that knee-jerk reaction that you have maybe which is really powerful. At the end of the day, we all live in this world together. So I always say, well, to people who are maybe skeptical of this, everybody comes back to live, unless we're locking up people forever, which for kids, we're definitely not. Even kids who get tried as adults, there's research that shows, and just even in my practical experience, a lot of those kids come right back on probation or just still right down the street where they were before. So if that happens, then is did what just occurred? Did that actually make you feel more safe, right? Did that initial like police call and all that stuff, did that actually make you feel more safe or less? And so I think like there's a lot of conversation about that. I know some people who are really involved in like the victims' rights community, but in a, because they felt like their voice was left out of the conversation, there's this man that I know, and he was the victim of a brutal, brutal assault. Like he still has such cognitive and like memory deficiencies because of it. And he felt throughout the prosecution that what he wanted, he well, that first initial like vindication happened, but then he wasn't feeling at rest. And it wasn't until he could go face to face with the guy and be like, hey, why did you do this to me? Right. And then feeling like there was some healing and resolution between the two of them really helped him down that pathway of healing. And ultimately that person itself, because the other thing, especially, I mean, I can't say I'm not going to say especially because that makes it seem like adults don't feel remorse, but kids feel remorse when they do something bad. For the most part, they feel really bad about it. Right. Like kids are they know when they've done something wrong and then they're sheepish about it. And they're also very truthful about it ultimately. And so they actually like saying, I'm sorry in an honest way. And then to say, I'm sorry. And then, then to have this whole other way in which they're taken away from their families or, you know, told like, you know, we used to have like these restrictions, like stay away from all of San Francisco. So they'd be like, wait, but my grandmother lives in San Francisco. It doesn't matter. You have to stay away from all of San Francisco. You know, like all these like consequences that weren't lined up and didn't. Kids are the most, you know, logic. They want you to be very specific and logic, right? They're really literal. So, I mean, these kids in the juvenile system aren't any different. They're also really little. They're like, but that makes no sense. And you're like, well, but these are their rules. So you have to play the rules because that's the only way you're going to get out of the system. We and I could talk to you for literally hours about this. I mean, I have talked to you for hours in the past, so I know how that goes. But I would just love to end with, you know, you've talked some about reforms and reforms that you're involved with. And, you know, is there anything else out there on the reform front, like one big thing that you're working on that we haven't talked about yet? So there is hope for this to change? Yeah, 
I mean, I think that there, so there's a ton of stuff going on about keeping kids in the juvenile system, but also transforming the juvenile system. I was just reading this article about this little county in Ohio, I think, who have decided that they're going to disband their probation department and create a whole new rehabilitation office, right? So understanding that we have gone too much in the correction model for kids. And so we're going to just start over and create something different. California has undergone this huge transformation. We used to, we were one of the leaders of the three strikes. We were one of the big leaders in the juvenile super predator myth. And in the last five years have done a huge amount of work in ending juvenile life without parole, mandatory juvenile life without parole, giving people who are in prison the opportunity to get out earlier if they can show that they've changed and they've rehabilitated, and also really limiting the way, the number of times kind of people who can end up in the adult system. So I think that, you know, for the areas, and restorative justice is taking off, but it needs community buy-in, right? It needs buy-in from everybody that oh, this idea of restorative justice is something that we want our district attorney to campaign on. We want that to be a big part of the office, that bringing in offenders and victims and talking together and resolving the issues. And then also just about community investment, right? So like we want, we need more education for the kids. And so there's all that, I would say, it's so tied up together, but if I were going to pick a few restorative justice. Think about where in your local county, like where your money goes, because that's the reason why in this Franklin County, what they're doing with probation is so huge. Probation takes up a lot of the county budget in wherever place it goes for juveniles only. They're like the sheriff for the juveniles. And so to take away that kind of corrections model and law enforcement model and make it more rehabilitation and kid friendly would be a huge jump for us. So there is hope. Seriously, thank you so much, Jusan, for coming on and talking to us today and really sharing a lot of insight into the juvenile legal system and the work that you did. And I can't wait to hear more about the work that you're going to keep doing. So thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you both. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at DearWhiteWomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 